Okay? It says it's running. So we'll take it for granted. Okay, we are uh, we are now in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, we're getting started a little later than normal. So, um, so let's just take a moment and kind of remember some of the things we talked about last week and then we'll get in. We'll get into this story in chapter 14 that, that uh, I've titled The War of the Kings. But what did we talk about last week? Very quickly here. Just living there in Hebron, not owning any land, not having any descendants, <clears throat> just living there, waiting for God's the fulfillment of God's promise. Yeah. What else? We have the strife between Abram's uh, shepherds and Lot's shepherds. Okay. The conflict between uh, Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen, and and what's the fallout from that? Okay, they had to separate. Uh, it was a pragmatic decision. Uh, I don't think there was any animosity, particularly on Lot's part or on Abram's part, uh, themselves individually, but it was just necessary because of the immense size of their household and all the attendants. And we're going to see uh, in the lesson today that, that Abram's household particularly is quite large and may have consisted of as many as a thousand people. Okay, so his household's quite large. So for those of you who had three or four or five kids, you know this, that was a piece of cake <laughs> compared to what Abraham's dealing with. And he doesn't even have any descendants yet. <laughs> These are all his servants and slaves and 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 hired hands and all that sort of thing that he's got uh, that he's responsible for. Okay, what else? Yeah. And yet, while I've talked so much for the time, uh, look at the, well, the, you went on to talk about the effect that it had on his family. Uh, and uh, how many times do we make the same, same yeah. kinds of decisions? Yeah. Part of that separation you mentioned too was that Abram had to be finished. Uh, he had to yeah. first be ready for what God. Yeah, the Lord. I think I think there are two things going on there. One is one is Abram needed to be diminished. He needed to be stripped down to just just God wanting to see it was just him, and he you know and and uh, and uh, we're going to see kind of the results of that lesson that Abram learned in in today's lesson. I think. Uh, and and then the other thing that I think is instructive in that separation is that it's that it's only after that separation and. And the Holy Spirit, as he records the story here through Moses, makes a point that it's after the separation that God comes and reiterates the promise to him. And it's as if to say, it seems like what the Holy Spirit is saying here is that there was a point in Abram's life where he couldn't go, that God could not go forward in fulfilling the promise in Abram's life as long as Lot was still with him because of Lot's confused value system. Okay, because of Lot's materialism and 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 even though he was apparently a righteous man, he was very materialistic, and and given that materialism, it seems like that would have been some kind of an impediment uh, to Abram in following the Lord and God's being able to fulfill His promise in the life of Abram, and so it was necessary that Lot be separated from him so that Abram could experience the full blessing uh, of God's promise in his life. Okay. I'm like started out uh, where he told him just to walk around the land. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes I'd love to just go out to a farm and just walk around. And, and sometimes I think, well, is that just kind of wasting time? Or, yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of got to thinking here, you know, he was telling Abraham walk this length and breadth of it. Yeah. And, uh, I don't think I'm being covetous when I do that, but just to enjoy it. Yeah. And, and also the fact that sometimes he, you know, he talked about him separating out of thought about that and in a sense he, he gave up part of the land temporarily and yet it's, it's that biblical principle you see a lot of times when you surrender something mm-hmm. to God mm-hmm. and he can really give it back to yeah. you yeah. as soon as he was willing to 
take the high road and said, Lot, take what you want. God turned and said, you know, you're going to end up with it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think we'll see from today's lesson that Abram learned that lesson very well. Uh, so let's, let's go on then. Uh, for sake of time, let's go on into chapter 14. And, and I want to cover about the first uh, 16 verses here of chapter 14, which is, as we say, the War of the Kings. And, uh, and bear with me as we read through all these names and places, and, and I'll try to get through them without ending up my tongue hanging out here uh, about at belt level or whatever. But it says, It came about in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elasar, uh, Ketelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bear, the king of Sodom, and with Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemember, uh, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served uh, Ketelamar, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelamar and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Carnaim, and the Zuam in Ham, and the Eman in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they turned back and came to An Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against uh, Ketelamar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goam, and Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled into the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anar, and these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken, he let out his trained men, born of his house, 318, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north or left of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot and his possessions and also the women and the people. Well, you read through that chapter and if you can manage to get through the names of all those kings and, uh, and the names of all those places and you get down to the end and you go, well, what was that all about? <laughs> and why was it important for the Holy Spirit to record this for us? Why was it important for the children of Israel out there in the middle of the wilderness uh, for uh, Moses to record this whole story for them? What's the significance of this story? And of course, if you've read ahead or if you're familiar with the passage, you know that next week, uh, depending on what we get done this week, but once we finish this passage, this week or next week, uh, then the following passage in the verses that follow is that whole story about Melchizedek. And of course, that's a profound passage in Scripture with pretty deep, uh, long-term theological implications. And so we can understand, of course, that part of the passage and why that's important. But why does the Holy Spirit take the time to talk about all these kings and all these different places and this whole setup for this battle? Uh, you know, if I was writing this, I could have described, you know, if I wanted to get to the whole story of Melchizedek, uh, I could have described this whole battle in a couple verses and got on to the important part of the subject, okay? Uh, the, but the Holy Spirit doesn't do that, okay? So there's something significant in this whole War of the Kings before we ever get to the story 
of Melchizedek. Okay, and uh, till we ever, before we ever get to the story, there are some things that are important for us to understand about Abram that are disclosed to us in this whole story of the Battle of the Kings. And to understand that, we have to go back again and do background work. We find ourselves doing this a lot in our study of Genesis, don't we? We've got to go back and, and do a lot of background work. And there's a couple areas that we need to do some background work on today in order to understand the significance of this passage and the significance of this event in the life of Abram. And one of the things we need to, to go back and think about is, is something we've already talked quite a bit about, and I want to talk some more about it today to refresh our mind and think about some new aspects of and it's this whole idea of covenant. Okay? This becomes this whole idea of covenant or treaties becomes very important in this passage. Okay? And, uh, and, and, and actually, I keep uh, harping on this thing about covenant because it is so important. But one of the things that I've been doing all the way through as we've been talking about covenant as we're going through Genesis is I've been building up to chapter 15. Because in chapter 15, a lot of the things we've said about covenant and some of the things we're going to see about covenants today become foundational to something that we need to discover when we get into chapter 15. So, so we're laying some foundation work here in the area of covenant. And the area, other area that we need to do some foundational work in is the whole, idea, the whole area of geography and geopolitical things that are going on in this context at this time frame in history. If you don't understand those, you don't understand this passage. Okay? It's just a story about a bunch of guys fighting each other over who knows what. Okay? So those are some of the things that we want to talk about. Now I want to point out to you, as you read this passage, uh, I want you to notice the, the scope of the passage. Okay? So... Up to this point in the story of Abram, we've been talking pretty much about Abram and Sarah and Lot and, and, and kind of pretty much just their individual life story. But you'll notice what happens here in chapter 14, in verse 1 of chapter 14. We are kind of suddenly jerked out of this very provincial, very focused view on the life of Abram. We're jerked out of that context and we're suddenly given a... Uh, 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 just kind of an almost a, an international view. Okay, in fact, it is quite literally an international view. So suddenly, we just leave Abram living there in Hebron, doing his thing. Okay, and suddenly we're studying about this this whole international intrigue of these nations going to war against each other. So here, on one hand, we have Abram living here peacefully in Hebron and just doing his thing and raising his cattle and and taking care of his household and that sort of thing. And while he's doing that, the Lord wants us to realize that there's something on a much greater scale going on. Okay? And the reason he wants us to understand that is because it has a bearing on Abram's life and how Abram responds in that situation. So you'll notice that as he goes through this this story in chapter 14, the, the kind of the grandiose nature of the narrative, okay? So even though there's all these battles that are described here in this chapter, and there's at least eight different battles that are described in this passage, he doesn't really spend much time telling us about the specifics of the battles. In fact, I could only identify about two or about three or maybe four different things that he says specifically about the battles. But the thing that he keeps saying over and over and over again is he keeps talking about kings. The word kings is used, I don't know, something like 20-some times in the chapter. Okay? He keeps talking about kings and he keeps talking about nations. And, and, uh, and so the impression we get is that, is that in this part of the narrative, he's not focused on, so much on the minuscule little events. He's focused on the grand scale of things. Okay? And, 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 and you're going to see kind of the scale of of it as we go on through the passage. Uh, let me turn this thing around here because I, I drew a couple maps on the back to kind of help you get a perspective of what he's talking about there. See if I can keep from running over somebody here. Okay, Don't laugh at my maps again. Okay, but uh, and th Those are two maps actually. Uh, this is kind of a broader map of the whole ancient world from the Mediterranean 
over to what is nowadays uh, Iran. Okay, so this includes Babylon and Paddan Haran, up where Haran is, where Abraham lived after he left Ur of the Chaldees, and and then of course uh, the area of Canaan. And this is more kind of uh, a focused view of of the land of Canaan. Okay, and. Uh, I just kind of drew those. You have better maps in the back of your Bible. If you want to stick your finger back there and look at those, you probably have better maps. But but one of the things we need to understand, in chapter 14, in verse 1, he starts lifting, listing off these four kings. And he mentions uh, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Ariok, the king of Elasser, and Ketelamar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goan, or Goyim. Um, and these guys, these uh, four kings, are actually, uh, we, we need to understand in the Old Testament when it talks about kings, that it, they're not kings like we, they're not always kings like we think of today. So, you know, we, we might talk about the king of England or the king of this country or that country. And those are large, large countries nowadays under, under our pleasant geopolitical system. But in, in those days, you would have a king, and he would often be over a fairly small area, sometimes over just a city. So, for example, when it gets into the second list of kings, it talks about the king doesn't even list his name, the king of, of Zoar. Okay? Well, Zoar is this little city right down here at the southern end of the, of the uh, Dead Sea. Okay? It's just a little town. Okay? And, in fact, when we get to the story of, the, of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, in, in the course of that story, Lot refers to Zorah and he talks about it being an insignificant city. Okay, so it was an insignificant city, but it had a king. Okay, so kings of cities were, you know, they're kind of like mayors, you know, today. Only our mayors aren't kings, and we don't call them kings, and we don't treat them like kings. But in those days, they did treat them like kings. So you would have kings of cities, and then you would have kings of regions or areas. Uh, and eventually, as nations got larger and larger, then you would have kings of a large nation. Okay. So this list of those first four kings who are listed are actually kings who come from this whole area of Mesopotamia. Okay. And, uh, and we, we don't know exactly uh, the precise location of most of these places, but the name Shinar should ring a bell with you because we've come across that before. So Amraphel is the king of Shinar. What is Shinar? Somebody stick your neck out and I'll chop it off. It's where the Tower of Babylon is. Okay, right. It's where the Tower of Babylon is. So it's Babylon. Shinar is Babylon. Okay. So the very first king in the list is the king of Babylon. Okay. And then you have, uh, you have uh, this other guy, uh, uh, Ariok, who's the king of Alasser. Okay. Alasser was very likely in this up in the northern area of the Mesopotamian region. Okay, so he's probably up in this area somewhere. Uh, and then you have uh, Ketelamar, and he's the king of, e of Elam. And Elam is this area down over here, which is kind of southern, southwestern Iran today. Okay, so it's this region down here to the southeast of Babylon. Okay. Uh, and then uh, uh, the last one is uh, Goyim, okay? And Goyim, actually it's a Hebrew word for uh, meaning Gentiles, and it probably includes an area clear up by the Black Sea. Okay. So immediately with verse 1, we discover that even though we're talking about Abram, who is, who's living clear down here in Hebron, or clear down here in Hebron, that the first kings that we look at in this story cover the entire Mesopotamian area from the Black Sea all the way down to the eastern shores of the Persian Gulf. Okay? So they cover a massive amount of area. And that massive amount of area also covers uh, a large portion of what was then civilization. Okay? So, so these guys are, are powerful, influential guys covering a massive area of the then known world and ruling over a significant part of the population of the world. Okay. Uh, the other major center of civilization at the time was where? Egypt. Okay. So you have those two major kind of economic, military, uh, uh, civilized areas: Mesopotamia and Egypt. Okay. Those are the predominant areas. And between those two areas, you have a, what was, what's called a land bridge. Of course, 
Directly between them, you have this massive desert that nobody would ever go through because they would die if they did. So they would always go around the Fertile Crescent and they would have to cross this land bridge if they wanted to, to enter into any kind of economic or trade business with one another, Egypt and Mesopotamia, or if they wanted to go to war with each other, they'd have to go through this land, what we call this land bridge, which consisted of Canaan and what is referred to as the Transjordan. Canaan is this area, basically along here, generally thought of, and the Transjordan is this area on the other side of the Jordan, hence the name Transjordan, this area along uh, the uh, eastern shore of the Jordan, eastern bank of the Jordan River, uh, basically from Peyton Haran up here and all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula down here. Okay, that's the Transjordan. And that land bridge then, even though it wasn't particularly uh, rich in resources or people or anything like that, was highly strategic because you had to go through this land bridge if you were going to engage, like I said, in any kind of military endeavor or economic endeavor in interaction between Mesopotamia and Egypt. Okay? So it's highly strategic. And whoever controls the land bridge has a dramatic economic and military advantage. So it's to their advantage to control this land bridge. Okay? And of course, in this land bridge, you have living the Canaanites and a number of other people, the Amorites and, and, and people like that, Amalekites and different people, a number of people groups uh, are living uh, in this land bridge. And they're not particularly strong or influential people, uh, but they hold or they live in a particularly strategic part of the world. Okay? So at some point, and it's not clear exactly what happened initially, but as we read through this story, we discover that the second list of kings that list of five kings, okay, who include the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and the king of, uh, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of uh, Zor and those other two cities. Uh, those are just city kings, okay? They don't, they don't control large areas, but they are five cities that we call the Pentapolis, P-E-N-T-A-P-O-L-I-S, the Pentapolis, meaning five cities, okay? They are five cities right here in the southern end of the Dead Sea area. Okay, and uh, and at some point, this guy Ketelamar, who is the king from clear over here, uh, southeast of yeah, southeast of Babylon, this king has come over and he's he subjugated these five kings and their cities here at the southern end of the Dead Sea. Why would he do that? Okay, he wants to control this land bridge. Now, you see this little dotted line here that comes down here? That dotted line represents something we call the King's Highway. Okay? There were two major ways of getting from, uh, from uh, Syria and from Paden Haran to getting over to Egypt. There were two main ways of doing that. And one was to come down the King's Highway down through the Transjordan, all the way down here. This is the Gulf of Aqaba, which is a gulf off the Red Sea. Okay, To come down here and then to go across uh, the Sinai Peninsula into Egypt. That was called the King's Highway. The other way was not as favorable, but it's what's called the Way of the Sea. It actually had several different names. It was called the Way of the Sea. And it would come right down the coast of the Mediterranean and go over. Sometimes in the Scripture, in places it's called uh, uh, the Way of the Philistines. Okay? It comes right along here, goes through the, goes through the area of the Philistines later and, and, and up to Paden Haran. Okay? So, there are these two ways, but the primary way of getting from Egypt to Mesopotamia or vice versa is down the King's Highway. And the King's Highway runs directly by the south east tip of the Dead Sea, okay? where you have Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and these other cities. Okay? And so it was in the interest of Ketelamar for his military and economic purposes to have control of this area. Now, it's not clear from the passage. He may have also controlled all these other cities along here too. But we see in the passage that these five cities had been his servants, it says, for 12 years, right? Uh, and that's in, uh, what verse is that in? Um, uh, verse 4? Uh, yeah, 12 years they had served Ketelamar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Okay, 
Now, when we read about them serving Ketelamar, this is not kind of a real a nice little gracious, you know, we like you and we're going you know, to help you out type of deal. This brings up this whole issue of covenant that we have talked about before. And when we, we, when we talk about covenant between individuals, and we've also referred briefly to the idea of covenant, international covenants or covenants between kings, okay? And when we talked about that, I mentioned that there are two kinds of covenants. There are parity covenants and there are suzerain vassal covenants. Okay? And a parity covenant is a, would be a covenant between two nations or particularly between two kings, okay? whether he's the king of a city or the king of a region or whatever. Uh, a parity covenant would be a covenant between two kings. And typically, a, a parity covenant would be, just simply be a, a, a kind of an economic military agreement. And it would be between two kingdoms or two kings who are relatively uh, comparable power and influence. Okay, so not one is not, not one is particularly no one is particularly bigger than the other or more powerful than the other. And so they would enter into a parity agreement. And oftentimes, these parity agreements, typically these parity agreements or parity treaties or covenants, would involve them simply saying, "Okay, if I get attacked, you'll come and help me, and if you get attacked." I'll come and help you. Okay, so there was a military aspect to it. There was also an economic aspect to it, where they would say, "Well, now we need to be able to get through your land so we can trade, and you need to be able to get through our land so we can, so, so they have this mutual agreement that they will allow one another to travel for either military or economic purposes through one another's land." Okay, so it was a parity agreement, and they would enter into a covenant, and they would, as we have discussed before, cut a barret. Okay, remember we've talked about that before. What does that mean? Talk about cutting a barret. B-E-R-I-T. Okay, it's the sacrificing of an animal. They would literally slit the throat of an animal, sometimes dismember an animal or whatever, and then they would sacrifice it. And, and, and it was part of the ritual ceremony that they would go through in order to establish a barret, a covenant. So they would cut a barret. They would cut an animal, and the cutting of the animal and the sacrificing the animal was part of the ceremony that they would go through as they established this covenant with one another. And part of the idea of sacrificing the animal was saying, you keep your part of the bargain, and I'll keep my part of the bargain, and if you don't keep your part of the bargain, I get to do to you what we just did to this animal. <laughs> okay? That's the significance of the cutting of the barret. All right? Well, that was one kind of treaty. But the other kind of treaty was a suzerain vassal uh, treaty. Okay, Suzerain meaning an emperor or king or ruler, that kind of a person. And a vassal, of course, is, is his subject. Okay, And so you would have a suzerain vassal treaty. And in a suzerain vassal treaty, you had one king who was really the big dog. Okay, He was the powerful one. He was the influential one. He was the great one. And he would, subju he would subjugate the lesser king, okay, the vassal, okay, and uh, and then but they would enter into a covenant, and they would write these covenants. And these covenants were kind of interesting things, and and remember earlier when we talked about covenants, we talked about fictive kinship, and we talked about one the idea of a covenant is, just, is is establishing a fictive kinship between people okay so uh, they would enter into a covenant would make them like brothers or like father like son or whatever in these in these suzerain vassal covenants or treaties the wording was very interesting because they would use this father son you know i'm your father you're my son type of thing you know they would use this fictive kinship language and 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 the treaties were very very interesting because the 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 uh, uh, suzerain, the, the, the big dog in the, in the relationship, he would make all these very generous statements like, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to take care of you and if you get attacked, I will come and defend you. And, and there are all these nice, generous, gracious things because I'm your father. Okay? Uh, and you are my son. And so your responsibility as my son is uh, you, you will, you know, if I need your help, uh, militarily, you need to come and help uh, help fight my battles with me and join my army, and uh, and uh, and and you need to let me come through your land when I want to come through your land. It's pretty much kind of a one-way street, really. 
But the real kicker comes at the end when he says, oh, yes, and by the way, you need to pay me a tribute every year. <laughs> okay? and, and, and either a specific figure would be set or a percentage figure of, G, uh, of GDP would be set in which, the, in which the suzerain would say, you know, a certain percentage or whatever of, of everything you make every year, you have to pay to me. Okay? And so he would come in and he would establish, the suzerain would come in and he would establish this suzerain vassal treaty with these lesser countries, okay? And really it's just kind of, you know, the big bully coming in and saying, you're going to do things my way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's quite clear that that's exactly what's happened here with Chedorlaomer, uh, the, the king from over from uh, Elam, is it? And, and, uh, and these five cities over here uh, at the southern end of the uh, Red, uh, Dead Sea. And the reason he's done that is because he needs the security of having the king's highway secured. He needs to have it secured so that Egypt can't come running up and come over and attack he and his buddies over here. Okay, And he's joined into parity agreements, into parity treaties with these other kings, these other three kings that we read about in verse 1. So you have parity agreements here and you have suzerain vassal treaties involved in this chapter, okay? And uh, uh, <coughs> I, lost, I lost train of thought. There was something I was going to add there and I forget what it was. Anyway, so, so as this story unfolds here, you have uh, Kid Leomar and he's in a parody agreement with these other guys and he's had these, these five cities over here, these, the Pentapolis over here, who have rebelled against him. Basically, probably all they've done is just said, we're not going to pay tribute anymore. Okay? So in the twelfth year, it says they rebelled. So in the twelfth year, they probably just said, we're done with this. You know? Now, obviously, we've learned from last, last week, they live in a pretty prosperous part of the country. Okay? It's a very rich land they live in, but for some reason, they've decided they don't want to pay anymore. So they quit paying this tribute every year to Ketelamar. Ketelamar goes and he talks to his allies, his, four bu- his three buddies who, with whom he has parity agreements and they all go to war and they come down. And we would expect that they'd come down and they'd settle up with the Pentapolis down here with these five cities. They'd come down here and they'd bring them back in line. Okay, uh, but, but in reality, as the story unfolds, that's not what happens. Okay? So as we read the story and as this campaign of Ketelamar's begins here uh, in, in chapter 14. What unfolds before he gets to the five cities? you all been hearing me talk for a long time. Now it's your time to talk. What happens first before he gets to these kings of the Pentapolis? Okay, it's really interesting. He has engagements with some other kings. This becomes important later, so don't forget this. Don't let this miss. Don't don't let this uh, slip by you here. But he actually has engagements. It's, there's kind there's kind of uh, two parts to his camp, three parts to his campaign. There's the northern part and the southern part of his campaign, and then his campaign against the Pentapolis. Okay, so he comes down the King's Highway, and he encounters as he's coming down the King's Highway, he encounters. Uh, and we're not going to go through all the names and kings and everything, but he, he comes down and he encounters three cities or three kingdoms as he's coming down the King's Highway, beginning here at about what we think of nowadays as the Sea of Galilee, beginning just uh, east of the Sea of Galilee. He begins, he, he defeats this guy, he defeats the next guy, he defeats the third guy, and then he slips by the Pentapolis and he goes all the way down here and he, and he defeats the, the Horites here in what's Mount Seir is this whole area here. It refers to Mount Seir in there. That's this whole area right here. And he defeats them. It says all the way down to El Paran, which is down here at the very northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba of the Red Sea. Okay. What he's obviously doing is he's what? What's he doing? Okay. He's securing the king's highway, isn't he? He's securing the king's highway. Now, whether or not these other kingdoms had also been on the rebellion, it doesn't tell us. Okay, So they may have been in on the rebellion. It may have been that he had originally subjugated these and hadn't subjugated the other ones and he decided he needed to subjugate them all. We don't know. But he goes down through this northern campaign. He gets these three uh, 
people groups. And then he comes down south of the Dead Sea, down here in this area and over in the Negev, and he gets three other groups. You see that? So there's a total of six battles, at least six battles, depending on how many battles it took to secure each one of those six places. There are six battles that occur, occur uh, beginning in uh, verse 5 and down through... Uh, Verse 7, okay? So there are six battles, and he, and he conquers those, and he subjugates those, and then he swings back around, and he starts coming up here into what we've talked about as the Negev, the southern part of Canaan, okay? And, and he subjugates uh, the, uh, was it, the Amorites uh, there. Uh, in, uh, in verse 7 it says, they uh, turned back and came to uh, and Mishvat, that is Kadesh, Remember Kadesh from Kadesh Barnea that you encounter later in the story of the Exodus? Okay, uh, So that's, uh, they come back to Kadesh and conquered all the hill country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar, okay, which is up here just on the very southern edge of the Negev. Okay? So they've come back and he's conquered all these kings. And then he finally turns to the battle that we think is important which is the battle between the four kings and the five kings, the battle between the, these great kings from the Mesopotamian region and these five little dinky kings from the southern end of the Dead Sea. And they have this battle in the, in the valley of Siddim. Okay? And, and he just tells us this little interesting thing about the valley of Siddim is full of tar pits. And kind of obliquely, as he tells the story, we discover that the kings from Mesopotamia win this battle. Of course they win. They're big, powerful nations with big armies. Okay? And you have these little five dinky kings from these five cities and they just clean their clock. Okay? And so you have uh, in, uh, in verse uh, 10 it says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them. But those who survived fell into the hill country. Now, it's a little, the translation there is a little difficult. And so it's a little difficult to understand exactly what happened. So we don't know for sure if what Moses is trying to tell us here is that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into the tar pits or if it was some of their armies who fell into the, into the uh, tar pits. But whatever the case is, it didn't really turn out very well for, this, for the kings of the Pentapolis, okay? They pretty well got routed. And the ones that didn't fall into the tar pits fled into the hills, okay? And uh, we do, next week, when we get to the next part, or whenever we get to the next part of the chapter, uh, we will encounter again the king of Sodom. So the question is, is this the same king of Sodom who fought in the battle, or did he die and is this the subsequent king of Sodom? We don't know, okay? So, but anyway, uh, I, I tend to lean towards the understanding that the people who fell into the tar pits here were simply some of their army, not necessarily the kings themselves. But it could be read either way and we really don't know the definitive answer to that. But at any rate, what we do see is that these kings are routed. Okay. Now, when one army routes another army, what's the next thing you do? Pardon? You loot, yeah? You go in and you plunder their cities, okay? And so that's what they did. They go in to Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities and they plunder. Now, I want you to remember, this is what they do. And although it only mentions specifically Sodom here, it is reasonable to assume they have done this at every battle. So by now, they are carrying with them the loot and the wealth of the entire Transjordan region along with the peoples of the Transjordan. Many of the peoples have been abducted and carried off with them. Okay? So they're hauling all these people around with them. Okay? So keep that in mind. So they go in and they loot Sodom. And suddenly this whole international picture we've been studying becomes personal again. Why? Because they got a lot. Why did they get a lot? Why did they get Lot? There are a lot of rich. Abram was rich. They didn't get Abram. He was living in Sodom. You notice the change? When we left him last week, he was just pitched his tent near Sodom. But now we discover he's living 
in Sodom. And so what we see is that not only had Lot made some bad choices last week, but he really didn't get his values straightened out, and he had begun to compromise. And as he compromised, he compromised more and more with the world until finally he's actually living in Sodom. And, and as a result of his compromise, he is captured and abducted and carried off into slavery. It's always the result of compromise, isn't it? When we compromise with the world, the end result is slavery. And that's what happens in the case of Lot. So Lot is carried off. But now the, the, uh, the narrative under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has gotten our focus on, on the personal implications of this great international intrigue. Who's the next person we focus on? Pardon? Abram, okay. And Abram is living over here in Hebron. Okay? He's just minding his own business. Now, I say he's minding his own business, but Abram's not stupid. So you'll notice that when he does mobilize, he has 318 trained men from his own household. Okay? So... So even though Abram, you know, we've just been seeing him wandering around feeding his cattle and, you know, and, and doing, while he's been doing that, he's been training men in his house how to do war because he knows he lives in a dangerous world. Okay. But other than that, he's living over there quite peacefully and doing his thing. And I'm sure he's, you know, reading his newspaper every day and, you know, and, and discovering what's going on with all these, you know, all these wars and stuff. And he's, he's getting the feedback and eventually somebody comes to him and tells him, that Lot has been captured, that Sodom has been sacked, and Lot has been captured and carried off. Now, I want you to notice when it tells us that, it says uh, uh, in verse 13, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Notice that? First time the word is used. Abram the Hebrew. And that's a reference to an ancestor of Abram's by the name of Eber that we've already studied about. And Eber was the last ancestor in the line of promise before the division at the Tower of Babel. And so it's kind of interesting here that as Moses is recording this story for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he wants to point out to us that Abram is a descendant in the line of promise. He is part of that seed that was promised to Eve in the garden. He was part of that he was part of that seed which the Lord said to Eve, he said, I would put enmity between your seed and his seed. i.e. between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay. And and the reference there, as we talked about when we were in that passage, is both, of course, to Christ, but it's also to all those who live by faith. Okay, To the seed of Eve. All of those who are part of that line of promise. Okay, And that there would always be enmity between her seed and the seed of the serpent. And what we discover here is that very subtly, Moses has been introducing to us the idea of this conflict between these two seeds. Now remember, all through this whole story, we've been talking about Ketelamar. He's the guy who's got the beef. He's the guy who's really leading this whole campaign. But back in verse 1, who's the first king mentioned? Out of the four. The Babylonian king, right? The king of Shinar. And so there's this very subtle theme or storyline that's going through this, that really what this, is a, what this is, is this is a battle between the seed of the righteous and the seed of the serpent. That's what's going on here, folks. This is a battle between Abram the Hebrew, Abram the descendant of Eber of the line of promise, and Amraphel the king of Shinar, the king of Babylon. That's really what's going on here, folks. This is that age-old battle that started in the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. This is that age-old battle of the conflict that goes on and goes on even today between the seed of the righteous and the seed of the serpent. 
Okay. Well, so Abram gets his armies together and he pursues these four great Mesopotamian kings. Of course, they don't know he's pursuing them at first, but they, he catches up with them at Dan. And he's got three allies, uh, Mamre and Eshcol and Aner. Okay, those three guys are Amorites who live down there in that area. Mamre lived there at Hebron and he had the oaks of Mamre by which Abram lived. Those three guys are allies with Abram. So Abram takes off with his allies and he pursues these guys. And he gets to Dan and he attacks him at night. He divides his force. He attacks him and he's victorious. Now when you have two great armies, and one defeats the other, what happens? What does the winning army get? The spoils. He gets it all. Well, so they defeat the Mesopotamian armies, and then they run them off clear over to north of Damascus. Okay? Chase, they just run them off. This little army of Abram and his allies, and whoever knows how many, 318 from Abram's household, and whoever knows how many from these other allies. And, they, and, and of course, the, the importance of the story is Abram and his household, so that's all it tells us about. But they just run them off. And as we conclude the story today then, and this is where it gets exciting to me, as we conclude the story today, Abram comes back home. And what does he bring with him? All the spoils. Now, we're thinking about Lot because Lot's kind of the important part because that's what he went after, right? So you're focused on Lot and he's bringing Lot back. But when he gets back and when we look at it next week and we, and we look at the king of Sodom comes out and greets him and Melchizedek comes out and greets him, Lot's kind of out of the picture again. So the issue really isn't Lot. There's something else going on here. Abram comes back having been victorious in defeating four great Mesopotamian kings. He comes back and Abram holds in his hands the wealth and the peoples of the entire Transjordan region. From Paden Haran all the way down to the Sinai. It's all in his hands. He owns it. It's his. All he has to do is say, I keep it. It's mine. I want it. Give his allies what they earned, what they deserved, and keep the rest for himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Abram at this point, I'm thinking back and I'm remembering that before I left Haran, God said, I will make of you a great nation. Here it is, folks. Here it is. It's all in His hands. This is the beginnings of the great nation. This guy... Have you ever thought about this when you read this chapter? By the time you get to this point in the chapter, this guy has profound economic and military influence from Egypt to Mesopotamia. He controls the entire king's highway. It's all in His hands. He owns it all. He's been promised this land. God said, I'll give you this land. And it's now all in His hands. And as I was thinking about this yesterday, I remembered another incident. When Jesus was out there in the wilderness after having fasted for 40 days and Satan came to Him and said, if you worship Me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Christ had already been promised all the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan comes to him and says, here it is. All you have to do is just worship me. All you have to do is just serve me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I don't know what all was going on in Abram's mind, but I think it's very clear the way this narrative is written is that Moses wants us to understand what Abram had accomplished here. And what now was under his control? 
And the question we confront here at the end of this passage, at the end of this part of the story, before we go on into the next, is what will Abram do? Is Abram looking at this great accomplishment and going, oh, this is how God is going to fulfill the promise in my life. But as a sneak preview, I'll just mention that he concludes otherwise. And the question I had to ask myself as I was studying this lesson is, how did Abram know this wasn't the fulfillment of the promise? Somehow, Abram, because he had eyes of faith and he had spiritual eyes, discerned that this was not the promise. And I think one of the ways he realized it is because there's another part of the promise. And that was the promise of an heir. The promise of a descendant. And Abram has gone out there and, and, and admittedly by the power of God, and that becomes very clear that his victory here was by the power of God, that becomes very clear in the passage next week. Melchizedek comes out and declares to him that God did this. So it's by the power of God. He has this great opportunity dropped in his lap by the power of God. And he has the discernment to know this is not the fulfillment of the promise. And as we see next week, because he knows it is not the fulfillment of the promise, he lays it all down. He lays it all aside. And he goes back to live many more years at Hebron, waiting for the promise. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, I love this guy. I want to be like Abram. I want to be a guy who doesn't look at every opportunity that drops in my lap and think, this is God. Because there are great opportunities that drop in our lap that will distract us and take us away from the promise of God and from the blessing of God. And Abram had the spiritual discernment to see that. And this guy who at this moment in his life controls the entire king's highway and has influence from Egypt to Mesopotamia and has the promise of God that he will be a great nation knows by spiritual sight that this is not it. And next week, he lays it all down and goes back home. Okay? So next week we'll go on and look at the rest of the story.